0: that? Yeah, where's it coming
1: from?
2: Let's find out. Fingers of lightning tore holes in the black sky as an angry cloud burst drenched the surrealistic landscape. It was 3 a.m. on a cold, wet morning in late November 1967, and the little houses scattered along the dirt road winding through the hills of West Virginia were all dark. Some seemed unoccupied and in the last stages of decay. Others were unpainted, neglected, forlorn. The whole setting was like the opening scene of a grade B horror film from the 1930s. Along the road, there came a stranger in a land where strangers were rare and suspect. He walked up to the door of a crumbling farmhouse and hammered. After a long moment, a light blinked on somewhere in the house and a young woman appeared, drawing a cheap mail-order bathrobe tightly around her. She opened the door a crack and her sleep-swollen face winced with fear as she stared at the apparition on her doorstep. He was over six feet tall and dressed entirely in black. He wore a black suit, black tie, black hat, and black overcoat with impractical black dress shoes covered with mud. His face, barely visible in the darkness, sported a neatly trimmed mustache and goatee. The flashes of lightning behind him added an eerie effect.
3: The Six to seven feet tall he has two large red eyes two inches in diameter now all of the witnesses say the same thing he has a wing spread of 10 feet and here's another little irony an object this size needs very large wings to support it a human being you or i if we were going to uh, make a glider that so we could strap on ourselves and fly with that we would need a wingspan of about 35 feet. Now, Mothman is bigger than we are, and he's got a 10-foot wingspan, and he flies anyway, like the bumblebee. Some of the witnesses down there now say that they have heard the sound of some kind of motor, humming sound as the occupant passes over their head. So possibly this thing is propelled by something. The wings do not move when it's in flight. When this creature is standing on the ground, his wings are folded back, and then when he takes off the wings spread as i said last night no one has seen any arms on this thing the wings spread the thing takes off straight up now we have over a hundred reports of mothman and more coming in every week so there's not really much reason to doubt that he exists he sounds unlikely but there is something like this down there and i'm sure anxious to find out what it is
0: Those were the words of John Keel, most famous for being the author of The Mothman Prophecies. He was a great writer and thinker on all things weird and wonderful. hairy monsters, apparitions, psychic phenomena, UFOs, and of course, Mothman himself.
2: Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is... Morgana. In celebration of Kiel's birthday, which is March 25th, we asked some friends in the paranormal podcast community to give us some thoughts about how Kiel has impacted their worldviews and ways of thinking. Joshua Cutchen, Rob Morphy, Mark Stores, Greg Bishop, Timothy Renner, and Brent Rains answered our call and so you will hear them as well as Morgana and I in this very special episode.
0: Josh Kutchen starts the ball rolling by telling us what he likes about Kiel's writing style and how his ideas are still unsurpassed.
4: I think that, you know, people tend to talk about Valet and Kiel regarding the UFO phenomena in the same breath, and... I can see why, but their, their approaches really couldn't be more different. Um, and, and, and their output couldn't be more different, I don't think. Um, and I obviously love me some Jacques Vallée. I think he's probably, he will go down in history as the, the best ufologist that's ever, you know, drawn breath. No offense to Stan Friedman and you know, some other folks, but um, in terms of somebody who's flexi- a flexible thinker and willing to adapt with the times, Valet's I think, your guy. But Valet's not always fun to read. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, uh, and again, I say that with all the love of my heart, but uh, there's something about Kiel's style that it's not it's not quite gonzo journalism. But it kind of gets close to that, um, which has you know gotten a lot of people to scrutinize Q a little bit more in recent years. They say, "Wait, this isn't you know verbatim to the letter true." And the fact of the matter is probably not a lot of it. Um, in some instances, objectively, obviously not. Um, but there always is the sense with Keel that there is sort of a truthiness to it, right? So this might not be the exact conversation that he had with person XYZ, but this is the basic gist of it. You know, he, it might not, uh, you can't necessarily put a time and a day, a time and a date, uh, pinpoint in certain encounters that he had, but this was sort of the, you know, the gestalt of everything, uh, uh, that, uh, that he experienced and i think that it kind of viewing him through that lens i think opens us up to accept a lot more people who have faltered and made mistakes um and being able to listen to them that way plus i mean the biggest thing about keel was the ideas that he had you know i think they were as important as as him documenting stuff um because that's my biggest that's my biggest complaint really about uh you know, the paranormal fan community right now is that everybody's really into paranormal porn right <laughs> so they won't like they won't and i get it i get it right I, you won't you want encounters you want encounters you want encounters but um very few people have the patience to to become as engaged and excited about theories and keel had a lot of interesting good theories that are out there and you, you know, he just to sort of wax quasi poetic about about these things um you know i think that hopefully at some point in the future even though i've never used any of his works in my books i think there might be a similar place for phil imbrogno um because you know he had a he had a big for people who don't know was a researcher who lied apparently about some uh, some educational credentials um and everybody threw out all his work you know he has some really interesting stuff but there is that taint of that that hangs all, all over it all but you know as greg bishop has said a lot of times um, you know, that doesn't that doesn't uh take away any of the ideas or theories that Imbrogno had. And I think that even if you really are a hardline person who doesn't appreciate Kiel's sort of truthy quality, you can still latch on to some of those ideas that he's putting forth, which honestly, I really don't think have been improved upon in <laughs> in the decades since in a lot of ways. I mean, I think it's I think they've been embellished a lot, but I don't think anybody's come up with some things that are better than say, you know, the UFO super spectrum idea or or things along those lines.
2: He was such a good writer. I mean, listen to the opening paragraphs to Mothman that I read at the beginning of of the podcast. There's lightning, there's descriptions of decrepit houses in a dark and stormy night. It's atmospheric. It fairly oozes creepy atmosphere. No other paranormal writer can set a scene like he does.
0: He inspires and conveys a sense of excitement or dread or paranoia in his writings. Feelings permeate his works in a way that other books don't. He's a very engaging author.
2: Yes. And he was, he was a journalist. Yes. And he was one of the old school journalists who was trained on the job. Basically he got a job as soon as he went to Greenwich Village in New York City at 17 years old. And he got a job at the copy desk and was writing feature articles. And then he started doing freelance magazine work and he figured out how to write a thousand uh, word essay or article and wrote hundreds of them literally starting at the age of 17, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. And because he was a journalist, he was really good at, at um, interviewing people. Um, he was really, really, really good at making people comfortable and getting information out of them. He was really, really personable, even though we have testimony from many people that he was kind of a curmudgeon. I think when he was younger, he was much more charming. And from the recorded lectures I have heard from him from earlier times, you know, in the 60s and 70s, he was much less curmudgeonly. Um, and, and so, you know, by the time it was the 1990s, 80s, and 90s, and he had become, a, you know, officially a curmudgeon you kind of understood why after everything he'd been through, but when he was younger, he was very affable and that made people comfortable.
0: And he asked different questions than say the air force investigators, you know, they would come, they're coming from a scientific background, not a reporting background. So they're showing up and asking questions all about the craft, you know, and Kiel's asking questions, not just about the UFO, but about the people. And he's not really looking at them to assess their level of credibility exactly.
2: That's what the, the Air Force investigators and the scientific investigators would ask about the people. They would assess their credibility. That was, that was the extent of their interest in the people especially early on the, that was the extent of their interest in the witnesses and john was not like that
0: i will say i agree with the truthiness again reporter he's telling a story but dear god john i really wish you had cited things better
2: <laughs> oh my god yes please please <laughs> yes yes um i i like In my books, in my paranormal books, as in most of my nonfiction books, I like proper citation, I like bibliographies, and I love me a good index.
0: Which is part of why we love you, Josh Kutchin. Yes. Because you have beautiful indexes.
2: I cannot praise a good index hard enough.
0: And John Keel was not, I don't think, was not as interested in that. He was interested in conveying the story. And I do think he streamlined things. I don't think he ever outright lied.
2: No, I don't think it was in him to do that
0: because reporters don't, but I do think he, he, their truthiness is a really good way to put it because it's not an outright lie, but it's also not pinpoint accurate. Because he's he's telling a story and a narrative, not just reporting cold clinical fact. Yes. Which is why his writing is, is interesting and fun to read.
2: I agree. Truthiness is the way to describe the way that he writes. Um, he does use fact. He will bend fact to his opinion at times, but it's usually pretty clear that that's what he's doing. He's not, you know, just jumping out and making stuff up. Everything is based on a truth of some sort. Now, sometimes his interpretation of history is fascinating and interesting and not how I would interpret it, but past a certain point, and that usually happens in his later works but past a certain point I don't really care because the truthiness is conveyed. Rob Morphy and Mark Storrs of the Kryptonauts podcast agree that he was gonzo before the term had even been coined by Hunter S. Thompson.
5: You know, it's an extraordinary thing when you think about John Keel. He was just a dude who was getting through life, uh, working, you know, and, and then he gets, you know, indoctrinated into the military and then he, realizes that there is this whole spectrum of the world that isn't being explored and i think he did it in a very mercenary way i think he's like people aren't really um dealing with this in a way that is legit so he goes from what is considered legitimate journalism to um this sort of like uh dark side of you know exploring reality and you have to admire you have to admire the fact that even though it might have had a mercenary edge he really genuinely was getting into it and and what i think is not appreciated about keel as much as it should be because what you always hear about is um the extraordinary he work he did in point pleasant and how he brought that uh to fruition and and other things that you know he expanded on until he got to the point where People are like, all right, well, maybe it was going a little crazy. But what Hunter S. Thompson was doing for politics in the sense of gonzo journalism, going just deep in there, looking for a truth that wasn't uh, you know, apparent, obvious, and and it was at times ugly, is exactly what John Keel did for paranormal journalism. In his early days, in his best days, he was really getting to a truth that Um, that the people were experiencing. He was not about um, fashioning it for an easygoing, you know, mid-60s society that needed to either poo-poo it or find some way to legitimize it through science. He was exploring uh, what was actually happening to the real people on the ground and, and relating that to other people. And I think the best part of his legacy will always be Um, the truth he explored through the eyewitnesses. Now, I don't always agree with the umbrella theories he had about like ultra-terrestrials and other things where it became sort of a uniform exercise and trickster entities. But what he did in terms of, I'm going to go to a place where there are unique things happening, be it Point Pleasant or Mount Misery or other things he did, and I'm going to find... um, the individual's truth the people that are there and i'm going to express it in the best way i can in a way that shows honor and respect to them um that legacy is to me the best part of what keel did and the thing that has always influenced me and that you go in there you you dig not if you can't find the truth in something paranormal which most of us never can you at least find the human truth in those who are experiencing it and the best of keel is when he did that and i i really will always love and respect that no matter you know where else the legacy uh would eventually go to and and for me he is the gonzo journalist of the paranormal and he is the truth seeker and even if he um, put his own patina on things. He put his own stamp on what he thought was going on, which isn't necessarily great objective journalism, but it is good storytelling. He always let the, uh, at least in, in in his best days, the eyewitnesses speak. And for that, I will eternally uh, respect and admire what he did. So John Keel really is is somebody I would look up to just because, he let the eyewitnesses speak for themselves and, and tried to reflect that in his work.
6: Yeah, no, I uh, I totally agree with that uh, sentiment. And, you know, I think you hit on a very uh, a, a good point there that it, he let the eyewitnesses speak.
2: As an experiencer and a former journalist, I have to say that I really, really, really respect that he listened to his witnesses. He not only listened to them, he cared about them and this I think is really 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 important to point out as someone from West Virginia and Morgana can back me up on this West Virginians particularly at that time were not very open people they there's a code of hospitality that you have but strangers in your midst are always noticed and viewed with suspicion, especially somebody from New York City. He's a big city guy, um, wearing fancy shoes and a fancy suit, and he had a beard. Nobody had beards in 1966 in West Virginia. Um, So that that was gonna be viewed with suspicion. And yet, because he earned the trust of Mary Heyer, the local reporter for the Athens Messenger, and he earned the respect and trust of the police in that area, in Point Pleasant and Mason, West Virginia and Mason County. He was welcomed by the witnesses. And not only was he welcomed by them, but he was invited to their house. He was brought to the table. And that's where that hospitality part of West Virginia comes into it it's the whole once you're trusted you're you're one of us and and there's you know testimony from people saying well we trusted john keel he was like us he did the hard work he listened to us he went out into the field every night and he cared about us he cared enough about them that he gave them his phone number in new york city and sometimes he would get a call from a witness at three o'clock in the morning and it would wake him up, but he would answer that phone and he was always patient and kind with them, even if he was awakened at three in the morning, because he recognized it was important and people needed to tell their stories.
0: He he got his hands dirty. Oh, yeah. he He didn't just go in like, you know, an Air Force investigator. He didn't just go in. And talk with the witnesses and leave. He went, talked with a bunch of people, got to know them, and then was quite literally out in fields looking at the sky and seeing UFOs and driving through zones of fear and, you know, getting communications from things like Indrid Cold. And was he was involved in not just their lives and not just getting their stories. He was involved with the phenomena in Point Pleasant and on Mount Misery. And I think that also helped because he was an outsider who in some ways became a trusted, almost insider, I think. I mean, that's yeah. no, that's, my, I agree. that's my take on it. I agree.
2: And yes, he got his, his, his hands and feet dirty, you know, he, he went out and did the things, you know, he, he, he did the hard work, he observed the, the strange lights in the sky, and he even describes smaller lights coming around him in a field in Mason County, West Virginia, and bobbing around him very up close, you know, and, and, and people respect that.
0: Yeah. I mean, he went out with groups of people. It wasn't always just him and Mary Hire. There are times that he'll describe going out in the Mothman prophecies that he was going out with groups of people. Yes. You know, I mean, he went out with Connie Carpenter and a group of Mothman witnesses to the TNT area all the time to see what he could see. Yeah, And I know that that's a lot more standard now. But at the time,
2: it it wasn't as standard, you know? Now we have ghost hunters and UFO hunters who kind of just, you know, dive right in. But I think we dive right in because he dove right in. And I think Gonzo, journalist of the paranormal, thank you, Rob Morphy, that is brilliant because Hunter S. Thompson didn't even coin the term Gonzo until the next decade. It was coined in the early 70s. So I think that John Keel was Gonzo before there was Gonzo. He kind of invented that. Um, I'm sure Hunter S. Thompson didn't know about John Keel, so I'm, I'm not saying Hunter S. Thompson wasn't the first Gonzo journalist. I'm just saying we had somebody who was ahead of his time, not just in the UFO field, but in the field of journalism.
0: I think so in some ways. I mean... Becoming embedded in a town that was experiencing a UFO flap was a new and different way of investigating. And that on the ground immersion was part of how I think you got the idea that all of these discrete parts of the phenomena were actually connected
2: it's because of the way he asked questions he said and he he i have a recording of him that i think is copyrighted which is why i didn't you know put it in here um but he's talking about he got the idea to go to a a small town a small area and use that as a microcosm for what was happening all over the country and all over the world. But he wanted to ask specific questions of the witnesses and find out how they were living. And he wanted to know what all was happening in that community, not just the UFOs. So when he had a UFO witness, yeah, he'd ask the same questions that, you know, a standard uh, scientifically minded or military minded person would ask, well, where did you see it? Uh, What time of night was it or day was it? What did it look like? Where did it come from? How did it move? Did it make sound? Blah, 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 blah. What color were the lights? Da, 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 da. And then after they told all of that and he wrote it all down, he would say things like, okay, so what happened after that? How did it make you feel? How did you feel when you were watching this? Did everyone see the same thing? Well, how did you feel afterwards? Oh, you had a dream. You had a dream that came true after that? Well, let's talk about that. What was the dream about? What came true? Did you tell anybody at the time? Oh, you told your whole family. How was? How were they affected? They weren't there, but you came home. What happened? Oh, poltergeist things happened at your house. You started hearing footsteps on the roof. Well, let's talk about that. You know, all of that high strangeness stuff, which didn't even have a name at the time, uh, was stuff that, Project Blue Book investigators, including J. Allen Hynek did not want to touch. They did not want the weird psychic phenomena. They didn't want people hearing voices in their heads from UFO occupants. They didn't want to know about people having interference on their television sets after they saw a UFO out on the road miles away, came home, then their TV set starts acting weird and they learned that they could run outside and look up in the sky and there'd be a UFO. They didn't, Jalen Allen Hynek didn't wanna hear that because the military didn't wanna hear that. I think Hynek really wanted to hear that because he did come up with the term high strangeness, but it wasn't part of the military protocol that he had to deal with. So, you know, and then Kiel started asking all kinds of other questions. Well, wait a minute, so before you saw the UFO, have you ever witnessed anything strange? And then the stories would come out. And then he'd say, okay, how about anybody in your family? And then he found out, oh, well, grandma was psychic and she predicted an earthquake or something. Well, you know, whatever it was. And it was like, oh, so your grandma was psychic. So anybody else in your family? And on and on and on until he began to realize that the places where these UFOs were appearing were places in space or places in a, in a place where things that were weird in all sorts of different ways happened. And that's when he realized that some of this was familial and he got the idea that some family strangeness just runs in the family. Um, or as we say in our family, it doesn't run through the family. It takes its time and touches each of us in turn as it passes us. Um, so I really think that he was groundbreaking in so many ways.
0: He certainly, one of his his phrases that he used to explain how to ask questions to other people, because he did start explaining, hey, you should ask different questions to other investigators, was find out what they had for breakfast. Like, ask so many questions, because you will dig up more oddness than you think. And it it did start to give him an idea of the sheer scope of the phenomena, that it wasn't just lights in the sky. It was lights in the sky and psychic phenomena and poltergeists and hairy monsters, and it ran in families, and it was... There were places on Earth where things were more common than other places, and it just his brain started to to expand. I think, and he started putting pieces together because of this. And this this is where he starts putting it all together into his ever evolving theories and ideas. And here's Greg Bishop with more on Keel and how he developed those ideas.
7: He went off on his own. And developed his ideas independently of other people, and because of that, um, those ideas still endure. Of course, you know, there's plenty of wackos that come up with funny ideas, and they just they don't they don't catch on, or people don't remember them, or whatever. But what he did is still relevant. Um, I see, like every 10 or 20 years um, or so. Um, people suddenly rediscover him because of these enduring ideas that are so away from the mainstream but so relevant because they came from his own research. Um, and yes, I think people have a problem that he made up things or trans- transcribed, not transcribed, what's it called? Um, he uh, transposed things and he knew what he was doing. Um, but I don't care really, because the ideas are interesting, and they're relevant. Um, and the fact that he was the first out of the gate saying, hey, maybe this is an aliens," you know, um, among other things, that that's still an enduring idea, even if it's not true or useful. Well, I think it is useful. Even if it's not true, that idea being there stretches things in a way that they should be stretched. When I think of Kiel, I think of this tarot card. The Hermit. Yeah. He goes and yeah, he goes and does his things away from everybody else and learns things that nobody else will know because they haven't done that. And that that's the other thing about him is so fiercely independent. And I'm that way, too. I mean, I, I, people keep telling me to do things with my show or do you know, you should do this or talk to this person, you know, or I want you to do this. It's like, no, it's my show. I'm doing it the way I want. And I'm not going to have an advertiser and I'm not going to be on a network and I'm not going to, and you know, and Keel was that way too. And I really respect him for that.
2: I cannot argue with any of that. I think that, you know, that's part of why he came up with the whole idea of extraterrestrial hypothesis. We don't need that. I don't think that's the case, because he asked all those questions that we just talked about, and he discovered what he began to call window areas, which Morgana just described, which are places on Earth where these things happen over and over in a semi-regular pattern over years, decades, and, and, you know, historically, things just happen in a cycle. It's cyclical. Um, So we should probably talk, you know, we're talking about his theories, you know, but we're not saying what his theories are, which is probably not very helpful. So he gave up on the extraterrestrial hypothesis early on, but he really questioned it even before he gave up on it by the time he showed up in Point Pleasant in 1966. And he wrote in 1967, Or he wrote about 1967, he said, I abandoned the extraterrestrial hypothesis in 1967 when my own field investigations disclosed an astonishing overlap between psychic phenomena and the UFOs. The objects and apparitions do not necessarily originate on another planet and may not even exist as permanent constructions of matter. It's more likely that we see what we want to see and interpret such visions according to our contemporary beliefs. By the time he wrote the Mothman Prophecies in the early 70s, it came out in 1975, he had also formulated the ideas of the superspectrum, which is the way he articulated what he called the ultra terrestrials as beings of pure energy. Morgana, why don't you talk about ultra terrestrials a little bit?
0: Ultraterrestrials either live unseen among us on Earth in the parts of the spectrum that we can't see, so ultraviolet
2: um, and and infrared. infrared.
0: We only see a very narrow band of light and the in the visible spectrum um, as humans, or they live in a. Dimension that overlays or is parallel to ours and pop in and out of it. And either way, they enter our visible light spectrum or our visible dimension at times and then leave it. And they may be temporary constructions of matter, which is why, you know, lots of anomalous animal tracks...
2: Like Bigfoot.
0: ...disappear. In the middle of muddy fields.
2: Or you find, like, the tracks of a Bigfoot, but it's only the left foot.
0: It's also, he also theorized that's why UFOs disappear in midair. Or he also noticed that they would enter on one side of the visible spectrum and leave on the other. They would go through, you know, cyan all the way to deep red before disappearing. Right. Right. he also started to realize and theorize that these beings had been with us since the beginning of time and noticed a parallel between UFO witnesses and contactees with historical religious figures being zapped by bright light. I mean, he made a sort of a case study of Paul of Tarsus who was struck by lightning on the road to Damascus and then converted instantly and became St. Paul. And he called this process illumination and theorized that that process was behind a lot of humans' religious convictions and religious movements. And the phenomena was actively manipulating humans through this process of illumination and it was continuing in the 60s and onwards and that they are the inspiration behind religious and belief systems as angels demons fairies jinn gods and goddesses spirits of the land spirits of the dead and that they're just now wearing a new face they're playing a new game as he called it of being aliens
2: and they really seem to want us to believe they're aliens for whatever reason. Um, you know, why do they do this? Why? And they do this so that we'll believe in them. And that that's gonna get us into a whole other discussion, but you know, they seem to want us to believe in them, but not too much as a UFO not supposedly told, Officer Herbert Shermer in 1967 at a crossroads in Nebraska. Again, the crossroads is an important little bit of information um, because, you know, angels and demons, if you want to summon them, you can go to the crossroads and summon them there. Um, and he was at a, a cross, crossing point of two highways when he ha- saw the UFO. And Keel believed, or Keel theorized, that they fed from the energy of our belief in them they feed from our emotions, our dreams, our nightmares, our love, our hopes and fears. Mark Storrs had this to say about Keel's theories.
6: What I really appreciate John Keel though for myself is that I you might not necessarily love the umbrella theory, but for me he was one of the first dudes to really come out and be like, look, ghosts, goblins, wizards, ufonauts, extraterrestrials, we might be dealing with the same thing here. And Kryptonite podcast, you know how I feel about this kind of stuff. That is my jam. So for, for me, like Keel's approach to everything by saying, like, you know what? Yes, you do have there's ghosts and there's Bigfoot and there's werewolf and there's all those other things happening. What if this is all just some weird misinterpretation that we're taking of the phenomenon and it actually is all the same thing? And that's for as a younger, you know, reader of his work, that's what always got me. So I appreciate the work that he put in. I think it's extremely important to what we're doing today. And yes, some stuff may have gone awry, but we can't dismiss how big that is to say, you know what, let's stop for a second. Let's look at the Sasquatch and the alien, even the ghost, and say, could we all be one large misinterpretation? And it is all honestly the same thing.
2: So he kind of made a unified field theory of the paranormal. And he was the first one to suggest that. Um, And that's huge. That's just terribly huge to basically look at all of this and see the commonalities that exist all the way through it.
0: Another thing that Heal theorized was a lot of the lore surrounding the phenomena was based on people who were either psychically inclined or who could see further into the super-spectrum than most people. So they were more likely to see the phenomena than other people. And there's also an element of people being chosen, and there's a big element of the phenomena shaping itself around your beliefs about the paranormal.
2: Keel was well known for saying that belief is the enemy. And part of the reason he said that was because he found that as soon as he formulated an idea or theory about the phenomena, whether he told that idea or theory to another human being or even said it aloud or even wrote it down, As soon as he formulated that idea or theory about the phenomena, it would shape itself to conform to that theory. This suggests several things. One, that the phenomena is telepathic. It can read our minds and intentions. And two, it will morph into something that reflects back to us what we want to see. Greg Bishop talks about the reflective nature of the phenomena in his co-creation theory, which is building upon Keil's work. And he had this to say about the phenomena:
7: If you're going to interact with a thing like an idiot, the the the, uh, the phenomena will tra- probably treat you like an idiot. But if you interact with it on a on a level where anything is possible, and and ideas and thoughts are stretched, and new and things are considered. The, the phenomena, like you said, is so malleable that it will conform to those weirdnesses and in that way reveal more of itself and more of its variety and more of maybe where it's coming from or what it is. Because I don't think we can even guess at what a lot of this stuff is and what the connections are. Well, we can guess at it, but it's so interactive that our ideas about it become what it is and why not have them be a little less boring and a little less um, stuck in this binary. Because that's 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 not how Keel or Valet think. They don't think in binary. They think in, in their 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 ideas are are are, um, are they they they're more they're more spread out and horizontal and 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 wide ranging and the net's a lot bigger. Um, that's another thing about the phenomenon phenomenon it will it will take the shape of the net that you're trying to catch it in. And if you don't notice, it'll stay that shape forever. And it's just a chimera that's sitting there that you made up. While while all the younger people and the Keelians and the Valetians and, you know, or whoever else, I mean, Jim Brandon's not popular right now, but still, or Greg Little or, you know, even uh, people like uh, Jenny Randall's, all those ideas, they reflect back, like you said, to the the phenomenon and, and become what it is. Our ideas become what it is. And that's fine. I think that's what it's there for. It's a big, big ass Warshock plot, and that's wonderful.
2: When Greg talks about how it shapes itself, you know, let's talk a little bit about Greg's co creation theory. And he says the manifestations are a case of the phenomena, which is possibly a non human consciousness acting in concert with the percipient's consciousness to create a specific manifestation that's a result. That, that then becomes the result of that interaction. Or as Josh Kutchin says, the manifestation is a case of our minds putting skins on the energy of the phenomena and shaping it. Uh, my particular metaphor for this uh, co-creation is that our minds are like wardrobes for them. And they contact our minds and they sorta, it's like opening a closet door and then picking through the outfits that are in there And they choose one to wear depending upon what the images are in our brains. Um, Mine was full of fairies and fairy lore. So that's what they grabbed in my case. They didn't grab the alien suit. Um, Even though I had aliens in my closet, they didn't, they didn't nab those. They, they decided to grab the fairy lore. I don't know why maybe they thought I'd respond better to that. And, you know, these beliefs are all extensions of Kiel's idea that the phenomena shapes itself according to our beliefs.
0: I do agree with much of these theories. I think there is, you know, Kiel also talked about a great deal of what was happening to witnesses was partially or wholly at times hypnotic. Where they would witness a light and then they would have a detailed encounter with a humanoid or perhaps they got on into the light, which was a ship and they traveled to another planet um, and back in an hour. But a fellow witness who was standing right next to them would only see the light and would not see the other witness leave something was happening inside the witnesses brains and it was interacting with the lights and with the phenomena to create another experience that was specific to that individual.
2: And sometimes though it groups would have this happen. Um, There's he he's in a, in a uh, lecture he described how he and Ivan Sanderson spoke to a family in New Jersey and this family described seeing a giant UFO, a giant light that was a mile across. And they, they estimated that by the the way it sat between two mountains, that they knew how far away the mountains were, they knew how wide the gap between the mountains was, so they estimated it to be a mile across. And when Kiel and Sanderson went around the neighborhood and talked with other people in that part of of New Jersey, there had been some UFO sightings, but nobody mentioned a mile across gigantic UFO except this family. They believed the family. Clearly the family had experienced something. They were upset enough, their uh, experiences matched, and they had no reason to lie. You know, nobody wants to be known as the crazy family that sees the UFOs. Nobody wants that. I mean, nobody, even to this day, I love how people are like on the internet, you made that up just so people will give you attention. No, no. And back then in the 60s, nobody was making that up because nobody wanted to be pointed at and laughed at. You know, that was, that was a serious thing back in the 60s. You didn't want people calling you crazy and sending you to the crazy house. Nobody wanted that because at that time, mental health care was horrible. In many places. So, you clearly didn't want that. So, they believed this family experienced something, but what they concluded they experienced was a manifestation of light that then took them on a mental journey. It interacted with their consciousness, with their brains, and sent them on a telepathic journey.
0: Now, this doesn't mean that people aren't really experiencing things and that every single experience is purely a telepathic experience that's not what we're saying that's not even what john keel was saying yes it's just that is that is an example of where the theories were going and how odd they were because this was an era of heavy nuts and bolts theories about ufos and then john keel's over here going, it's a psychic thing, these things exist in the super spectrum and are temporary manifestations of matter, and they're interacting with people's brains in a telepathic way, where everybody else is going, these are definitely aliens from Venus.
2: Or wherever. <laughs>
0: you, know?
2: Um, you know, interestingly, if you look at the paranormal community today, and if you look at, at the UFO researchers and paranormal researchers and writers of today, a large number of the middle-aged and younger researchers are very, very shaped by and informed. Their Their own opinions and theories are shaped and informed by the theories of John Keel and the writings of John Keel. They're also very uh, inspired by Jacques Vallée, but we're talking about Kiel today because it's his birthday. Jacques Vallée can have his own birthday celebration another time. We'll get to him. But, you know, these, these researchers and writers, myself included, read Keel and understood his ideas as being useful. And so those ideas shaped our own ideas. And what I think is interesting, if you take Kiel's belief, or or I hate saying belief because he said belief was the enemy, how about we'll call it his theory, that the phenomena shapes itself to the contents of your belief system or your theories or your consciousness or your mind, because I really think this is a consciousness-based phenomena, that we are interacting with an energy-based life form, that is non-human, it is an intelligence that is in its native form, a consciousness. And we cannot fathom this really very well, but I, I do think that that's what it is. Well, if that's the case, and if that consciousness shapes itself according to what's in the percipient's consciousness or mind and according to their beliefs, and theories and ideas, then Kiel, by the power of his words alone, may well have shaped the paranormal phenomena that we experience today. By shaping the minds of other theorists and writers, he may well have shaped the phenomena that we see and interact with today because it is reflecting back what is in our minds. And Kiel, his words, his theories, his ideas are in our minds. So it's very meta. I'm, I'm, I'm going totally, you know, off the rails meta here. But I think it's a reasonable guess that the reason that the phenomena is so weird now. And we have, you know, paranormal Bigfoot, you know, appearing and disappearing with great ease in front of people, and we have dogmen and all sorts of things, you know, phantasms appearing and disappearing all over the place, is in part because Keel shaped our expectations of this phenomena back in the 60s. So without Keel, would the phenomena be as crazy and wild as it is today? I don't really think so.
0: And here's Greg acknowledging Keel's inspiration of his own theories and
7: ideas. Josh says that I kind of formed some of his opinions. That's what Whitley did to me, and that's what Keel did to me, and that's what you know Valle has done to me. They have formed my opinions, and I have tried to carry their torch and then go a little bit further with it in a way that I think makes sense to me. Whether I get whether I carried it ahead or not is not the point. But that's you know. Those are the shoulders I'm standing on that that, that give me inspiration.
2: Keel's theories and ideas aren't the only way in which he inspires people. I feel very strongly that his journalistic background and his need to always ask the next question and the next one and the one after that, the who, what, where, why, and how of everything inspired me to keep asking questions. And his empathy for witnesses also inspired me. He believed his witnesses. He didn't throw out data. When people told him that they had a prophetic dream that came true after seeing Mothman, He didn't didn't toss their testimony and instantly label them as flakes in his mind he listened he took note and collected that data
0: for me his theories sort of helped me come to grips with my own experiences with the paranormal because they have been varied they have been many and varied and i'm like oh okay that's just how the phenomena is now my question to myself is always, is that how the phenomena is? or is that how the phenomena is for me because I read Keel when I was 12?
2: It's a valid question.
0: <clears throat> and it's one I don't have the answer to, but that's okay. And you know, here's another researcher who is inspired, and it's Tim Renner, who's also inspired by the gonzo journalist of the Paranormal.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the real talent of people like Keel who uh who did put himself into the investigations he wasn't he wasn't a scientist you know he was he was uh in my opinion more of a folklorist and he was like okay these people experience this this and this i'm gonna put myself in the middle of that and see what happens you know <laughs> N- not so many words but that's essentially what he did yeah. he, he, he oh, yeah. became the story for, for mothman prophecies uh certainly and some of the other things he looked into absolutely but um his genius is able to his ability to make a story out of that, a narrative. you know, out yeah. of all those disparate pieces, you know, and, and that's, you know, what I really look up to him and, and, and why I think he's one of my favorites. Cause, cause of those two things, his ability to make the story and also his ability to, to or his refusal to separate himself from it. Because I think if you're honest and you're into this stuff, you're going to become part of the story.
2: One of the things that's become popular recently is bagging on Keel for not being as careful a researcher as he could have been. How he didn't tell the absolute truth, but instead went with a great story. Some of his histories factually suspect or hell, even that he wrote for men's magazines. Some people get head up about all the crazy stuff he wrote and how he wrote with great sweeping passages of wild speculation. That gets on some people's nerves, but Greg says it helps if you realize that Keel is writing in metaphors.
0: I think that nobody should be above criticism. So I think it's fine if you want to criticize Kiel for all of that. There, there is validity to some of that. You know, I mean, I am, I'm also frustrated because he doesn't cite things. And I like citations, personally. Um, and there's other things that you can criticize him for. But I, I'm frustrated by the criticisms of, you know, you're not supposed to have sweeping passages Of wild speculation. We're in. We're all speculating wildly. Yep. About UFOs and Bigfoot. And the paranormal in general. So. I take that. Criticism with a grain of salt. Because. I think we're all just speculating. Now. Kiel does. Kiel does have his own particular moments.
2: <laughs> We're coming to that.
7: Somebody asked, do you think Mac believed what he wrote? And I said, sort of. I mean, I think he believed he was writing in, in metaphor, even though it didn't sound like he was. And that's kind of how I feel about Kiel. He said, what do I do with all the stuff I've gathered and all the weirdness? I mean, you know what was the discordian thing? Somebody had to put all this weirdness here. Um, He, I think he took what he found and tried to make sense of it in a way that made sense to him in the way that he'd experienced it and the way that, you know, he had uh, interacted with it. And I'm sure I never talked to him about this or I I pick it up in his writing. I'm sure he knew what he was doing was an interaction with the phenomenon. He was totally aware of that. Um, And that his view of it was not a literal view, and that what he was trying to make sense of, it's like, look, let's, we've got, we've got all these colors. I've got to put them on a canvas, and I'm going to put them on the canvas the way I want to. It doesn't mean somebody else is going to put them on the canvas in a different way. But this is how I see it. This is my metaphor. This is my model. And I do realize it's a metaphor and a model, but I think it's a useful one.
2: But one of the biggest criticisms is that in later years, he became cynical and he burned out.
0: Josh Kutchin has an interesting take on Keel's burnout.
4: Something else that I like about Keel, and I don't know if he realized it at the time, but it's almost like he burned himself out so that we don't have to, <laughs> in some ways. Uh, you know, because... You know it's he pretty famously got i would say you know for lack of better terms frustrated and, and sort of a little bit burnt out uh towards the end of his career slash life and uh i think that uh that does a couple things for us number one it sort of serves as a warning for us to never get too involved or to take this stuff too seriously not that he did but you know he was really Mapping uncharted territory, when he was looking at this stuff, um, but B, as much as, as much as I admire Kiel's way of thinking, he was for the longest time really uh, wrapped up in, as everyone was, uh, in this really dualistic: is it real? Is it not? Materialist? Non-materialist? Sort of thing, which was the natural way to approach it. But I, he, he by the time he finally realized that this might not operate that way it was kind of like well what have i done for you know my entire life so i think that in some ways he sort of sacrificed his his career and his lives so that the rest of us could take that torch and say okay objective proof of these things is probably not going to happen we need to start thinking in terms of imaginal things versus imaginary things as opposed to you know is it real is it physical is it not um And I think that's really what he experienced more towards the end of his life than actual being burnt out or being scared of anything. I think that he really was coming to grips with the fact of, oh, you know, I've been... (laughs) I've been asking... We've all been asking the wrong questions for a long time. And now I finally understand what the questions are and maybe I would have asked different questions if I could go back and do it differently.
2: Yeah, I I think... He wasn't just burnt out. I think he was angry and, and at himself and other researchers, but not just that.
0: I think he was also angry at the phenomena itself at that point in his life. I think he was frustrated that he had been asking the wrong questions and that the wrong questions were being asked and that the field, he was very critical of the field of ufology, at the time, um, he was a salty man.
2: Yeah, he was. It's true. It's true. Um, he he was he was also, you know, when when people talk about to new researchers, people who become ghost hunters for the first time, the best sort of advice I've ever heard someone give. Was, you know, don't take it too seriously, take a break from it every now and then, walk away, do something else, hang out with your family, have a family, have friends, have fun, don't just chase the ghosts or, you know, chase the UFOs or write about your psychic experiences or whatever. And the thing with Kiel was, is that was pretty much what he did. That was his profession. You know, if you look at him versus, say, Jacques Vallée, because we keep coming back to, to Dr. Vallée, because they, as Josh said at the very beginning of this episode, they are spoken of in the same breath. Um, but Dr. Vallée had different things that he did. He had, a, he had a, a wife and children. He became a computer scientist. He went off and helped invent the Internet, for God's sake. He helped invent email you know, that takes up some time and it takes your brain away from all of this weird stuff. And uh, then he went on to become a venture capitalist and made a lot of money. So he had other things that he was doing and that he was concerned with. And, and I think that Valet profited from that, not just by making a lot of money, but it kind of kept him centered. It kept him a little bit chill. You know, he did have frustrations, and if you read some of his books, there were some frustrations there, but he doesn't get as angry as Kiel did.
0: Because Kiel, Kiel lived alone, Kiel was a writer, Kiel was a researcher, and that's just what he did. He wrote and researched and had lectures, and that's what he did. And I think burnout was sort of inevitable and the phenomena the trickster phenomena messed with him and his phone was actually tapped yes
2: at one point
0: and his friends jim mosley and gray barker played tricks on him and i think paranoia was to an extent inevitable in that sort of situation and he didn't take his mind away from it he just stayed focused on these things.
2: And that's not a criticism, that's just what happened. Um, but most of all, by the 1980s, when he wrote Disneyland of the Gods, he was angry. The book is a screed against the phenomenal, where he takes his maxim that belief is the enemy and he just climbs up at the top of a, a verbal mountain and screams it from the mountaintops. Belief is the enemy.
0: Yes, he does. Um, The book begins with a fairly cynical look at the influence of Charles Fort, and in this excerpt's sharp words, readers catch a whiff of Keel's frustration at his own fate.
2: Despite all the nonsense, when we have finally scrambled or crawled our way through the unfortunate 20th century, we may look back and realize with a terrible shock the Charles Hoy Fort towers above Winston Churchill, Albert Einstein, Tom Edison, and all of the other alleged giants of these hundred years that ate saints and farted Hitlers. Fort squeezed the udders of the sacred cow of science, and he made us recognize that we were living in an age of miracles, an age when kitchen sinks could fall from the skies while little green men from somewhere else cavorted in our city parks he opened our eyes to things that had been there all along. He cataloged oops, out-of-place things, and Farfrotsky's, things that fall from the skies. It was Charles Fort's misfortune to live in an age when writers were cheated and conned, ignored and abused, and expected to starve. A period not unlike the 1980s.
0: One, that's just amazingly entertaining writing too. He is so salty. Oh yeah. He's so frustrated. he it, That's how it feels anyway. I, I'm not a mind reader and I'm also not a time traveler, so I don't know exactly how he felt, but it sure sounds like he's salty.
2: One of my specialties in, in my uh, college career was literary uh, criticism and interpretation. And using those skills... I can't, I'm not a mind reader, but using those skills and looking at the text itself, he was, he was angry. (laughs) He was not a happy camper at that moment. Um, You know, he's going on to mad rants and, and things started to sound a little bit unhinged and it just kind of, that book just kind of goes downhill from there.
0: He begins using we to refer to himself or it was him referring to himself and other researchers. I'm not sure which. Um, But this book slaps, alright? He is like, he turns into almost the Lewis Black of the paranormal for the whole book. He's just ranting and frustrated and very, very done with everything. He's done with the field. He's done with science. He's done with researchers. He's really done with the phenomena. He's over it. He's like, this is just messing with people. It's been messing with people since the dawn of time. I'm just, nobody's listening to me about this, and I'm just going to go off.
2: Yeah, pretty much. So the last chapter of Disneyland of the Gods is called The Last Laugh. And here is the opening. They've got us surrounded Those chimera of the ancient Greeks, reeking with fire and brimstone, still stalk us. The tall, hairy monsters with the glowing red eyes march through suburbs in Ohio. Kangaroos prance around New Hampshire. Dinosaurs frighten motorists in Texas and pygmies in Africa. 90-foot sea serpents frolic in lakes with only a few inches of water in Ireland. Little green men visit Brazilian farmers and French vineyards. Tall, long-haired gods in shining armor chat with sign painters in New Jersey and fertilizer salesmen in Nebraska. Weirdly iridescent wheels of light pursue airliners in Alaska and lonely motorists in the Ozarks. Aside from the small band of Fordians scattered around the world, nobody seems to notice all aspects of this phantasmagoria. It's been going on since the beginning of our race and will continue long after we've all shipped out to another planet because our prophets have warned us that this place in space is unsafe. We have never learned... Thousands of years ago, the authors of the Bible told us to beware of those who claim to represent distant states, powers, and principalities. Did they mean those sly characters who are now professing to be visiting from other planets? Undoubtedly. The RAF tried to tell us about these things in 1969, but the believers went on believing. Belief is the enemy these myriad creatures are not real in the same sense that a gorilla is real they march across muddy fields leaving tracks that end abruptly as if they had vanished into thin air then the sad misanthropic hocksteaders attack the witnesses lending their peculiar brand of lunacy to an already lunatic situation large groups of people often see astonishing things in the sky Like our monsters, these things also come and go in a mysterious manner. Countless witnesses have said they vanished like a light bulb going out. Again, the hocksteaders have simpered and snickered. Such things can't be within the confines of our reality, so the witnesses must all be liars and kooks. The truth is, we are dealing with distortions of reality with hallucinations and transmogrifications, with energy forms that feed upon magnetic storms and sometimes upon living things. The evidence is in. The answers are here. But the believers do not want crass scientific answers to the complex notions of their theologies. They want their beliefs confirmed, not explained.
7: I think Greg Bishop says it best. He's running in the crazy fields, and he's totally fine with it.
2: Can you blame him? I think the implications of this weirdness, if you think about it, the possibility that he could be right, what if there is a non-human intelligence that's basically using our belief in it as food of some kind? And that intelligence has been behind all of our religions. Think about that. Yeah, sometimes it's benevolent. Sometimes it, it has miracles that, you know, benefit us. But sometimes it's awful. And it's two sides of the same coin. And our emotions, our devotion, our love, our hate, our fear
0: is all
2: food for it.
0: And we've been manipulated and continue to be and will continue to be manipulated by the phenomena. If you think too hard about that, you'll be running through the crazy fields right along with John. You know, I
2: I don't care. I'm like Greg, I don't care. I don't care if he got a little weird in there. If you look too long into the abyss, it looks back at you. And I think that's what happened to John. He wasn't perfect. And maybe he wasn't the greatest guy. Maybe when he got older, he was a curmudgeon. Maybe he could be grumpy, but he moved the paranormal field forward by leaps and bounds when he came out with the idea that UFOs, ghosts, cryptids, fairies, angels, demons, all of this was the same thing. More and more researchers, writers, and experiencers are coming to similar conclusions. We wouldn't be talking about the other as a general term for non-human intelligences without keel
0: and I agree i one I don't mind that he he goes off the rails a bit there because he's still entertaining to read and two there is there is the implication of and it's a scary Im- 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 implication of if these things have always been here, which there's a decent amount of evidence for that, as collected by Keel Anvillet and several other researchers and folklorists. But that's a scary thought. And I can see how you could really get paranoid around that. And I think that moving the field forward and making people think differently about this was something that needed to happen and is still valuable, even if he got a little, little wild-eyed there at the end. <laughs>
2: yeah, and who can blame him, really? Okay, one last thing. He had a great sense of humor. He wrote comedy for for some radio and television shows, and and, and it shows. And he had a really
0: great wit. Here's how he responded to Greg Bishop's request for a blurb for the back cover of his book, Wake Up Down There.
7: By the time we were going to do the book, uh, the book anthology in 1999 or 2000, I remember because I would talk to him by phone, maybe once every three or four months, I I would talk to him and just let him talk. I wish I'd taken notes. Um, But I remember I called him and I, I kept pushing him. I was like, hey, John, could you give me a blurb for the back of the book? And he'd be like, oh, no, I don't do things like that. And finally, around Christmas of 2000 or 99, one of those years, yeah, probably Christmas of 99, I said, John, we're just about to go to press. I feel terrible, I have the flu, I feel like I'm gonna die. If I'm not here and you don't give me a quote, you'll be guilty for the rest of your life." And he cracked up. He cracked up and he said, "'Okay, okay, okay, how about this?' He said, "'The truth is out there, "'but but it's nowhere in this book, buy mine instead.'"
2: And that blurb is why I bought that book when it first came out.
0: Here's Kiel himself recorded in a lecture he gave in New York in
8: 1966.
3: Four days later and about 30 miles away, An elderly man, a 70-year-old man in a very small town called Fuller's Falls, was out taking a walk. And he saw a large object on a tripod arrangement, and it it scared the living daylights out of him. And he turned around and started to leave the scene, and he claims that he heard a voice saying, Don't run, don't run. He said he didn't run, but he walked pretty fast.
0: We call that high-speed nonchalance in uh, our family.
2: Yeah, I I always think of it as never run from an immortal. It only attracts their attention, which is from The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. He had great comic timing, and he was always witty when he gave lectures. He was always opinionated, and yeah, sometimes he was salty, and he didn't like having people blindly follow him, so he might have something to say about us, you know, naming our blog after him and our our podcast. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, But he was a, a trickster figure himself. And while he famously said, belief is the enemy, he developed plenty of theories and ideas that could be taken as beliefs. But he was adamant that we should never blindly trust anything from anyone in a UFO or anything that any creature says whether it be a ghost from a seance or a Marian apparition. Or, as Brent Rains, author of John A. Keel, The Man, the Myth, and the Ongoing Mysteries, found out when a voice claiming to be Keel spoke to him through a spirit box.
8: I didn't uh, have the spooky experiences that Keel described in his Mothman prophecies with a saucer zipping by his car late one night on a hilltop. Uh, in West Virginia and assorted other creepy and very weird things he described a few months after his passing in 2009 while working with a small group of paranormal investigators visiting haunted sites in Tennessee and Alabama. And, you know, of course, I couldn't help but think of John Keel, a great loss to the field, and wouldn't it be nice if we could somehow reach him? That's what I was thinking about when Brett Oldham, who had had ghost... Uh, an alien encounter experience, as he claimed, going back to age five, introduced myself and others to an AM-FM digital radio rigged as a spirit box, or what some call ghost box. Soon we were getting interactive messages from a voice saying, John Keel, and we got things that Keel would have related to. For a time, it seemed so common that one evening my wife, Joan, had a talk with Keel, telling him to wait his turn as she had family she wanted to try and connect with on the other side. Keel had, when alive, expressed skepticism about these voices of the dead, as well as the so-called space brothers. He suspected they weren't who they claimed to be. He felt that the extraterrestrials were being tricksters. Well, maybe, maybe not.
2: Whether John is speaking from the land of the dead or not, he'd have had a laugh over the fact that this file that Brent sent me played fine when I first got it. But then, when I began editing this show, it refused to play in the middle of the exact section I wanted. And Brent had to resend the file.
0: A little piece of the trickster in action.
2: No matter how you feel about Kiel... He was a giant in the field of paranormal studies and his legacy looms large over us all. And even so, we shouldn't take him or the paranormal too seriously, as John himself didn't take his, himself very seriously, even as he was investigating the Mothman and the UFO flap in 1966.
3: The police out there, instead of calling the Air Force, now they call me because I, I go out there and I've been cooperating with them and I've set this up around the country. And uh, I get calls from all over the country now from people who are caught up with the Air Force, and they don't know who to turn to, so they turn to that nut with a beard that passed through last month.
0: At the conclusion of this episode, we would like to thank authors Greg Bishop, Joshua Kutchen, Brent Rains, Timothy Renner, and the podcasters Rob Morphy and Mark Storrs of the Kryptonauts podcast for contributing to this episode. Special thanks to Zach Kramer for the new creepy soundtrack and all the editing work.
2: And I'd like you to join us in sending love to our co-host, Kendra Maurer, who couldn't be here with us on this episode as we had planned because she's dealing with a very heavy family crisis. She'll be back with us, but probably not too soon. But we love you, Kendra, and we miss you. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Until next time, keep your eyes on the skies. Alt across your doorstep. And don't ever, ever, ever talk to Indrid Cold, just hang
0: up the phone, just hang up the phone, change your number, move to a new state, probably won't stop the creep, but it's worth a shot.